Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys today. So in the state of Georgia, there are two churches located about a mile from each other who have the exact same name. And you might easily confuse one for the other, given the name and the proximity, and, and that confusion might be merited given the history of these two churches. There used to be one church not 60 years ago. The split happened because of a, a theological issue that was a hotly debated topic at that time in history. It was the matter of who had the better fried chicken. Uh, it was a church picnic. There were two ladies at that church who didn't exactly get along. Both of them made fried chicken. Both of them brought it to the church picnic, and this unsuspecting pastor was at one end of the table, grabbed chicken out of the pan, ate it, he made the comment, this is the best chicken I've ever had in my life. Well, that was that. Because the lady whose chicken was not the best he had ever had in his life was fed up. She grabbed her chicken, she grabbed her stuff, she got her posse, and they left the picnic very promptly. And a few weeks later, this other church of the same name was established. It's a silly story, kind of a sad story. But most stories about church splits are sad. Sometimes they happen over deeply significant theological issues, but most of the time it's because of really silly, petty things that just get out of hand. Even when a church doesn't split, there's just something about the dynamics of a church body where we can manage to argue about some of the most inconsequential things. In fact, Tom Rayner, he's a consultant that works for churches and helps them through some turmoil and stuff. He did a, a Twitter survey. He just asked Twitter, what are some of the most outrageous church fights that you've ever heard of or been a part of? And he made a list of his top 25. Uh, I'm not going to share all of them. Two of them that kind of just stood out, though. There was one church that had a prolonged argument over a, pot, or a, a uh, crock pot that had been said, sitting in a cabinet for years untouched. But one Sunday, the youth group borrowed it without asking, and, and now this was an issue, because what if they had broken it? We'd have to find something else to put in that cabinet and ignore for years on end. We just we can't do that. It's kind of silly. Or there was another church that had a prolonged fight about what to call their monthly meal. Should we call it a pot luck, or should we call it a pot blessing? Because there's no such thing as chance when it comes to a sovereign God, after all. These are legitimate arguments that erupted within a church, and that occupied people's time and energy and focus, and it all seems kind of silly, doesn't it? We don't always argue over big, important things. A lot of times we argue over disputable things. And those kinds of things, disputable matters, really at the heart of this series that we've been in for three weeks now. It's called Life, Liberty, and Lamb Chops. And we're talking about this idea of Christian freedom and Christian liberty. There are certain things in scripture that are absolute yeses and absolute noes, and there are guardrails. We live our lives between those absolutes and those clear prohibitions and encouragements, but in between them, there's a whole lot of freedom to think what you want to think or believe how you want to believe or practice how you want to practice or vote how you want to vote or do how you want to do, so long as it's within those guardrails. That's part of the joy of belonging to Jesus. We're not all robots who think and act and live and move in one you know, monolithic way. We're able to just try to honor God with our lives the best we can according to where we are in our life and our faith. But sometimes that freedom might put us at odds with one another because your opinion and my opinion may not be the same. We may disagree on some matters. And so the question becomes, how do we disagree in a God-honoring way? 
That's the question we wrestled with last week in part two of our series. We're going to continue to wrestle with it today, whereas last week we focused more on the individual and how we as individuals can get along, the significance there. Today we're talking about it in a wider context of the church and why we as a unified church have to disagree well and in a God-honoring way. If you got your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open those up, the book of Romans chapter 14. Let's bring the lights up just a hair so everybody can see their Bibles. Romans chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind, put the text up there, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. You tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes tool along with our passage pulled up, broken down, ready for you to engage with, get the most out of our time together. So as we get rolling here and really start to get into the meat of our time together, I want to make a statement that probably seems obvious. It should go without saying, but here's the thing. Things that go without saying have to be said from time to time so that they can go without saying. Follow? And this is one of those statements. The unity of the church matters. It matters a lot. We can look at the stories that I shared this morning and we can kind of laugh because they're kind of comical. But the comedy really lies in the ridiculous nature of these stories. And to be ridiculous by definition means to be worthy or deserving of ridicule. Because there's something shameful about allowing such trivial, disputable things to become such big issues that have such big impact and make such huge waves and do damage. There's just, it doesn't make sense. It's a very dangerous proposition. And sometimes that's what happens when we become very attached to our freedoms and liberties. We kind of lose focus of the importance of unity and loving each other more than our, our liberties. That's what Paul is trying to warn this first century church in Rome about. And to remind them that there are ideals that are greater than just what we eat or what we drink and what we're free to do. A little bit of background to kind of catch us up to speed in case you've forgotten or you're just joining us. This church in first century Rome, it's kind of split over this issue of diet. On the one hand, there are people in this church that when they go to the marketplace, they see meat at the meat stands. All meat in first century Rome existed because it had been sacrificed to an idol at a festival or at a temple uh, maybe hours before. That's just where meat came from. So it is, all has this idolatrous connotation to it. And there are many people in the first century church who looked at that and said, I used to belong to that idolatrous religion. I don't want to practice anything that looks like that anymore. I believe in Jesus. I want to be faithful to him. I'm just not going to eat meat anymore so I can be faithful. And that was a biblically informed, God-honoring decision. That was a good choice. But at the same time, there were other people in this same church that looked at that same meat and they said, you know what? Those idols and those gods don't exist. They are figments of the human imagination. My God made that, the creator of heaven and earth. He made that for us to eat, so that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to praise him and give thanks for it. And that, too, is a biblically informed, God-honoring decision. Both parties were right. Nobody's wrong here. They just had a different understanding or a different view of this issue. But they're not appreciating one another's different views. Instead, they see this as a, an issue that maybe we need to argue about. And so some people are being looked down upon because they don't eat meat. Or some people are being condescended because they do eat meat. And there's judgment and there's condemnation starting to bubble up in the surface in this church. And it's starting to cause issues. 
And it leads the Apostle Paul to encourage them and to say, look, if your freedoms are making faith more difficult for people, then you have to set those freedoms aside. The whole uh, statement can kind of be summarized in verse 15 of Romans chapter 14. He says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, meaning faith is more difficult for them than it ought to be, then you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. It's a very clear warning. If your freedom is making faith more difficult for somebody than it needs to be, you're not acting in a loving manner. You're loving your freedom more than your brother or sister in Christ. Set that aside for their good. Now we hear this situation and we hear how freedom is kind of maybe tearing people down a little bit. We say that's awful. You know, freedoms and liberties, that's not what they ought to do. But the situation is actually a little worse than that. Because this someone for whom Christ died, that we read in our passage, is not just some person. It's a member of the church. It's part of the body. <clears throat> and they're being destroyed or torn down by another member of the church, another part of the body. In other words, the body is eating itself alive, and it's tearing itself apart, almost like a cancer in some ways. Now, that's a scary word. We know that word well. We know it's a disease. It comes in so many various forms. It can be very dangerous. You know, that's, that's a word we take very seriously. But honestly, dysfunction and disunity in a church is kind of like a cancer. All cancers, no matter what their variety, they operate in a very similar way. There are unhealthy cells in the body that start to multiply rapidly. And they, they multiply to such an extent that they start to crowd out healthy functioning cells until the, the tissue or the organ that they're located in either is complicated or it has diminished function or it stops functioning altogether. And eventually those unhealthy cells will grow and crowd out healthy cells to the extent that the whole organism might die. And that's essentially what happens in a church when dysfunction and disunity are sown and left unaddressed, it grows, it multiplies, it divides. There's a church that I'm, I'm intimately familiar with. Uh, my wife and I have attended there uh, years, excuse me, years ago. Uh, it's a healthy church at one point. Uh, there was a minister there who decided to step aside. It was just time, wasn't anything bad. And a, a new minister was hired and he's brought in. He was different from the first guy, as you would expect because no two people are the same. But the differences, these disputable things, they really were kind of a thorn in some people's sides, and they began to grumble a little bit. And there were issues about the dress of the new pastor. The previous pastor, usually he wore slacks, he tucked in his shirt. The new guy, he wore jeans, the shirt was always untucked. Sometimes, it was even a little wrinkled. Don't look too closely at mine, by the way. There were issues because the previous minister, he, was, he lived a, a fairly healthy lifestyle. He trained for, for marathons and such, trim guy. The new guy, a little bigger. Health wasn't necessarily as emphasized in his lifestyle. That kind of got under some people's skin. Their preaching styles were different. Honestly, they weren't that different, but they were a little different. There were different priorities for goals and for ministries and so on. All of these differences, none of them, uh, you know, earth-shattering things, all of them disputable matters, well, they really started to, to just be sources of, of frustration for a group of people that grumbled, and then that grumble kind of spilled over into other circles in the church that, that grumbled, and that spilled over, and it started to grow. And pretty soon there were rumors that started to swirl around about the new pastor and what he said or what he didn't say what he did or what he didn't do, what he was going to do or say, or what he was not going to do or say, many of which 
We don't really know where they came from. But it got to the point where it became a source of irreconcilable dysfunction. And there was a split. There were a large number of people that left this church to go start some other congregation. And there were people that had worshiped together side by side for decades. They were no longer gonna be in the same room and you'd lost respect for one another. There were families that used to worship together on Sunday and now one would be in one location, one would be in another. There was a lot of interpersonal trauma that people experience. It's rough when a church family splits up, but that's the danger of leaving this sort of disunity, this grumbling, these disputable matters and loving our freedom more than one another unchecked. The unity of the church is in jeopardy. And as much as it hurts individual people, it's really a little more even more significant than that. There's another church in the first century that the apostle Paul wrote to. This time it was located in the city of Corinth. And they're having arguments about disputable matters. They have a lot of problems in Corinth, but one of them, they was arguing over disputable matters like which preacher am I gonna follow? And it's beginning to create factions and divisions. And, and here's what Paul writes to them in chapter three of 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple. And I wanna pause there. You yourselves, English is a confusing language because that could mean, hey, you, each of you individually people, you are God's temple. The Greek's a little clearer. This is a plural, second person plural pronoun. As my kinfolk in Southern Illinois would say, don't you know that all y'all collectively are God's temple? He's talking about the church body. He says, don't you know that all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple, all y'all, are sacred and you together are that temple. You see, the church body, the church assembled, not the building, the people, is the temple of God. It is the gathering in which the Spirit of God is found on earth, in which people can encounter him in a living, moving, breathing way. It is a special thing to be in the church. People sometimes ask, do I have to go to church every Sunday? And I think my new answer is gonna be no, just the Sundays where you wanna encounter the Spirit of God in a significant way. If you don't want that, you stay home and eat pancakes, that's fine. But if you wanna encounter God, he's with his people, gathered with his temple. And when people start to sow seeds of dissension and when there's division that creeps into his temple, you probably picked up, God takes that pretty seriously. He says he will destroy that person who destroys his temple and all y'all are that temple. The unity of the church matters, not just because it's good for our relationships, but because to disrupt that is to be dishonorable to the God that we worship. We don't wanna desecrate his dwelling place. Unity matters. But it's really even more significant than that. I know we just keep getting higher and higher. The stakes keep getting bigger, but it's true because unity isn't just significant because it honors God. It also honors the mission of God which is kind of where Paul takes the text as we keep reading. It's not just unity that is important. The witness of the church is also incredibly important. And that's what we read as we keep looking at verse 16. He says this, Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. That first line, don't let 
uh, what you know is good be spoken of as evil. It might be tempting to hear that out of any sort of context and say, well, he's talking about our freedoms. I shouldn't let, you know, things that I eat, I know that's fine. I shouldn't let anybody speak ill of that or things that I drink or things that I do. I shouldn't let anybody speak ill of that because I'm free to indulge in those things, right? It'd be easy to make that argument unless you kept reading because that kind of flies in the face of the entire thrust of this whole chapter. I don't think Paul's talking about our freedoms in verse 16. In verse 17, he seems to clarify. He says, for the kingdom of God. So now we're talking about that, which means when we talk about don't let what you know to be good spoken of as evil, that we're probably talking about the kingdom, the church, the gospel, everything under that umbrella. But things get even clearer when we look at uh, the grammar and the vocabulary used here in verse 16. That phrase, spoken of as evil, if we were to look at the Greek New Testament that the, the New Testament originally written in, that Greek word is blasphemeo. That's where we get our English word for blasphemy. And in the New Testament, that word most often, not always, but most often is used to just talk about those outside of the church and what they have to say about the body. So the implication here seems to be this. Don't sour people's view of the church because you guys can't get along. Don't let the kingdom of God be spoken of as evil and blasphemed because you love your freedoms more than one another. He's talking about the witness of the church here. Our unity says something about who God is. You've probably noticed this, but our world is a little messy. It's a little frustrating. People get hurt a lot. There's a lot about our world that is easy to look at and say, there's something not right about this. And you don't even have to be a Christian to see that. Everybody has this sense and everybody longs for something else, some transcendent experience. They want something more, something bigger of themselves than themselves. And the church is God's answer to that longing, or at least the church at its best is the answer to that longing. Remember, it's his temple where people encounter his spirit. That's what the church is supposed to be. But when we argue or we bicker over disputable matters, we really don't look any different from the rest of the world. I was reading a blog this week about, eh, it doesn't matter what it's about, it was about church stuff. But there's a paragraph in there that when I read it, I went, man, that, that sums it up so well. It's, it's what we're talking about today. It goes like this, I wanna share it with you. Most people, including you, I suspect, are exhausted by the division, tribalization, and anger that characterizes culture today. It's pretty clear that the culture is tired of itself too, but it doesn't quite know how to escape. That's the perfect opportunity for the church to simply be the church. An exhausted culture needs an alternative to itself not an echo of itself. And that last line in particular, I think just, just nails it. People are tired of the dysfunction in our society, but they don't know what to do about it. And here is this thing called the church, this beautiful shining example of reconciliation and grace and mercy and loving each other more than our freedoms. When the church is as she ought to be, she is a beautiful alternative to this world. But when we allow division and opinions and disputable matters to become more important than they ought to be, we just look like an echo of everything else. And who wants a gospel that produces that? It's one of those things where we are challenged 
to let go of ourselves and our freedoms for this, this bigger mission, the witness of the church. And that's hard. It's hard to say no to ourselves, to let go of our, our pride, our ego, our longings, our opinions, and so on. And I think that's why Jesus prayed for us in this regard. In John chapter 17, this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament, well, of ever. And it's a pretty insightful prayer if you read through it sometime. He prays for himself because he's gonna be facing the cross in just a few hours. He prays for the 12 disciples and their ministry that they would stay strong. And then he concludes this prayer by praying for those who will come after the 12 as a result of their ministry. That's us. Jesus prayed for us. And this is what he prayed, John chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone, the 12. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me. And listen to this. There's a purpose statement. So that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as, I, even as you have loved me. Jesus prays for our unity, that we would be brought to what he calls complete unity. That doesn't mean we all think the same or we act the same or have the same opinion or vote the same or even read the Bible and have the same interpretation of every passage. What that means is that we love each other regardless of those differences, that we set aside those differences of opinion to hold on to that which is most important, these greater things. Paul talks about them in verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or what we drink, but it is a matter of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There are things worth striving for and being right or holding on to our liberties and our freedoms probably doesn't make the list most times. The unity of the church matters because it bolsters the witness of the church. When the church is unified, the world looks at it and goes, I want what they have. That's what he kind of references in verse 18. You know, look at that. He says, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. When the world finally sees that alternative to the brokenness and the dysfunction, they want that. Our unity testifies to the legitimacy of the gospel. Our unity testifies to the goodness of God. Our unity is worth protecting. It's worth actively protecting which is why there's this call to action in Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God, meaning the people in the church, for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. We're free to live according to our consciences and convictions within the guardrails of scripture. We are not free to trespass and distress one another. We are not free to make faith more difficult for one another than it ought to be. We are not free to use our freedoms and liberties to sow seeds of dissension and disunity within this thing that God is building through the work of the gospel. 
And if there comes a choice between rather exercising my freedoms and my liberties or setting them aside for these greater things, we have to choose option B every time. There is no food or drink that is worth making faith more difficult for somebody. There is no social media post, no public opinion, no possession that is worth sowing dissension within the church body. Nothing is worth destroying the work of God. When I was in college, uh, I had questionable tastes and style and not questionable in an offensive way, questionable in a very tacky way. Um, if you've ever seen my wedding picture, you've seen my spiky hair and my soul patch, that should be enough evidence for you. Uh, but that sense of style or lack thereof, that came into my dorm room as well. I wasn't exactly Martha Stewart, uh, but I had this little display on the bolster of my bed kind of this little Asian-themed display. It was one of those like desk water fountains. It was four alabaster jars that kind of poured into one another. It's like this little bamboo shoot next to it. And then to sort of kind of pull it together, kind of in between and in the foreground, I had this little, little red Buddha statue that just sat between them. It was this Asian-inspired thing. And what's interesting about that statue, that little Buddha obviously wasn't of a religious significance to me at all. And I don't mean this mean, but that particular depiction of Buddha reminded me of Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars. And it kind of made me laugh. And so that's, it, was, it was just kind of this little serene little spot in the chaos of a boy's dormitory. Well, during this time, I was a youth minister. Uh, and we had this girl that started to come to our youth group with her friends. Her name was Mindy. And Mindy's family owned a Thai restaurant in town, and they were practicing Buddhists. And so Mindy started to come to church a lot. Uh, she was there every Sunday. She was there every Wednesday. She was there at every special event. And after a while, it wasn't just a matter of, hey, I want to have fun with my friends. Mindy had good questions about Jesus. In fact, she started to ask what it means to follow Jesus. And we had a whole lot of conversations about that. But she didn't want to hurt her family or, you know, disrespect her parents. And so she wrestled. What do I do? And she asked me one time, can I be half Christian and, and half Buddhist? <sighs> the answer obviously is no, you got to make a choice. We had that conversation. I think that was the last one we had. When we finished, I came home that night. Never, excuse me. I've never hated an object more in my life. Than that little statue. Because I thought this thing that means so little to me. Is such a hindrance to her. How could I have this knowing that it's going to make things so much more difficult for her? So I had to go, whole little display. It used to be this little serene thing 
But now I just despised it for what it was. I don't share that as some sort of boast or anything, but just as an example of how this principle shows up in our lives when we really start to think about it and look at it. It might be a possession. It might be what we eat or what we drink. It might be some opinion that we often share in public on a, a hot issue. It may be a social media post that, man, we really just want to put that because that's a zinger. But the question we have to ask ourselves every time, is this going to make faith more difficult for somebody? Or is this going to threaten the integrity of the church and its unity? Because if the answer is yes to either, it's not worth it. Nothing is worth tearing down the work of God. Not statues, not fried chicken, not crock pots, not lamb chops, not our political views, not that thing we saw on Facebook. None of it. This is the church. This is God's temple. And we strive for higher things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the way that he gave himself away to save us, to bring us to you. It's my prayer that we would do likewise, that we would love each other more than our liberties, that we would love you more than our liberties. We would seek to make faith easier for one another, that we all might succeed and cross that finish line, that your church might be built up and brought to complete unity, that the witness of the gospel would be maintained and that you would be praised and honored in all of our freedoms. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.